This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Think of a library and what comes to mind. Maybe the one in your hometown where you grew up pulling index cards from a filing cabinet using the Dewey Decimal System to find your sometimes musty books. Libraries have changed a lot since then, of course, to keep up with the way we get our information online. But what happens to all that old content posted to the internet? It turns out there's a library for that too. Communities around the world raced to respond to the coronavirus pandemic last month by shutting down, as businesses, schools, and libraries were rendered unavailable seemingly in an instant. One of the effects of the shutdown was that hundreds of millions of books were immediately made inaccessible to students, teachers, and the wider community. The Internet Archive, a San Francisco-based organization perhaps best known for its Wayback Machine archive of web pages, responded with the National Emergency Library, a tweaked version of its controlled digital lending program that brings scanned versions of millions of lawfully acquired books to readers under strict controls. I've been a long-standing board member of Internet Archive Canada and was pleased to be joined by Brewster Kale, Chris Freeland, and Kyle Courtney to talk about the Internet Archive, controlled digital lending, the National Emergency Library, and the copyright implications of recent developments. Brewster is the founder of the Internet Archive and joined from San Francisco. Chris is the Internet Archive's director of open libraries who joined from St. Louis, and Kyle is a lawyer, librarian, and the copyright advisor at Harvard University, where he joined from Boston. Brewster, Chris, and Kyle, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Okay, it's, I'm really pleased that you're all able uh, to join. First off, I want to get into the Internet Archive and the, the National Emergency Library, but first off, how is everybody doing under was obviously uh, difficult circumstances here and around the world. Actually, pretty great to be trapped at home in San Francisco. I, I have to say, it's a, you know, in terms of a place for having a confinement, uh, this is about as good as it gets. <laughs> okay. I'm in St. Louis, and uh, things are things are okay. It's uh, you know, it's stressful uh, for everyone, and uh, we're just sort of focusing on the work and trying to help where we can. Yeah, and I'm south of Boston, and uh, we've had uh, more copyright questions the last month than I've seen in my entire career. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Uh, we should do a whole other podcast on that. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad everybody's uh, coping well. It's good to hear. Uh, Brewster, you're the founder of, of the Internet Archive, and I thought we'd start with you and talk specifically about the Internet Archive. For those that don't know it, can you provide a, a bit of an introduction to what it is? Oh, sure. So the Internet Archive is a nonprofit library. Uh, mostly uh, people use it through archive.org. Uh, and it's been around for 25 years. And the idea is to try to build the Internet into the digital library of Alexandria. Could we make all the published works of humankind available to anybody wanting to get access to it? That was the dream of the Internet that I signed up for. And the Internet Archive is trying to fulfill the parts of that vision that aren't being done by others. Okay, that's the vision. What are how, how are you trying to fulfill that vision? What are the, some well, of the kinds of activities? We started by archiving the World Wide Web. And it's probably how we're best known as the Wayback Machine. It's a free service that offers past versions of web pages. So you can we snapshot the web. We now archive 
a, over a billion pages a day, or more precisely, a billion earls uh, per day. Um, and we go and collect those, and then people can go and type in an earl that may not be on the web anymore and see past versions of it. And this has been really useful for journalists, but also for people that just have been putting their lives online, but the average life of a web page is only 100 days before it changed or deleted. So as a new publishing medium came up, we knew that there was need for a library. And so the Wayback Machine, we also archive television, tv.archive.org, you can search based on what people have said on US television news uh, and be able to pull that clips uh, for what they've said over the last, oh gosh, 10 years. Now, um, we also digitize books at about 1,000 to 2,000 books a day. Um, so we have over 4 million books up on the uh, archive site for free use. The older books um, are available for free download and searching and, and, and all the like. Um, but the modern books we do uh, use digitally lend it one reader at a time for every book that is in one of the open libraries libraries. Okay, so we're talking about millions of books. Where do the books come from that, uh, that, that are used? The Internet Archive either buys the books or they're donated. Uh, and we work with a lot of, of libraries. So we, we now physically own um, millions of books. We work closely with Better World Books, which is a fabulous uh, online bookseller that's now owned by uh, another sibling uh, nonprofit. So it's a nonprofit, effectively, uh, bookstore. Um, so if, if you going to go buy books, go buy books from Better World Books. It's, uh, it helps the whole nonprofit sphere. And where they get their books is libraries deaccessioning. So when they want to go from 10 copies of the newest uh, thing down to two copies, because it's not the newest thing anymore, often they will uh, give them to Better World Books, which will sell them and then donate the money back to literacy programs at that library. Okay, that sounds like a great program. So that's the physical book. How do the books then become digitized and made available through the Internet Archive? So we digitize these. We built our own book scanner. We open the book, not not flat, because that'll break the book, because we love the books. Oh, and we don't butcher the books. So it's all, it's on, it, these are, uh, the, there's no books harmed in the, uh, in the preservation function uh, that we do. And we take pictures of each of the pages, and somebody actually physically turns the pages. And then um, we uh, OCR them and make them available to the blind and dyslexic. Um, we allow people to data mine the books to do meta science, uh, which is a very interesting coming field, um, and also uh, do this digital digital lending. Okay, so we've got millions of books that are all lawfully acquired through libraries, through the other programs you've talked about. You go ahead, digitize those books, and then make them available in different ways, depending on whether or not the books are older, i.e. in the public domain, or if they're newer and they're subject to this controlled digital lending approach. Yes, the controlled digital lending is basically there's no more circulating copies, but we have a physical copy that we know is not circulating, and then we either lend the physical copy or the digital copy. And now other libraries are joining in on this. So their, their, their books that may not be circulating can join such that there's not just one copy available. There might be two, three, four, five, six, seven, or 100 copies of that particular book. It's really good for the older books because um, you're looking at images of pages. Um, there, it's not that great for, if you could get an EPUB version on your Kindle or whatever, you would. Um, but this is for the 20th century books, um, is dominantly what we see leveraged out of our collections. The things that it's a library, it's the depth of a library. 
I want to come back to the con controlled digital lending, perhaps bring Chris into that. Before I do that, though, um, as you know, I'm a board member of Internet Archive Canada, and lots of my listeners, of course, are in Canada. Can you just fill us in a little bit on some of the activities Internet Archive Canada or Internet Archive has been involved with from a Canadian perspective? The Canadian institutions, we mostly deal, uh, Internet Archive Canada works with the University of Toronto, the Ontario area, University of Alberta, UBC, and works with basically the different um, public libraries and, and, and institutional libraries uh, in Canada and um, mostly does digitization with them um, and then gives them back. So Canadiana, which is this fabulous collection of, of sort of the classic Canadian uh, literature that was on microfilm. Um, we all helped sort of digitize that and then make that available, um, but also collecting web pages that are specific to Canada. So these different institutions have librarians that are going and building subject-based subject collections of things that are important uh, to their collecting uh, philosophies. And then those are searchable collections that are also housed in uh, and sent back so that they're on Canadian soil. So it's not just an American thing. Okay, fabulous. No, I, I've been a proud member of the board for, for many years now, and some of the activities are really amazing from a Canadian perspective. Let me, let me bring Chris into the discussion. Tell us first a little bit about the Open Libraries program at Internet Archive, and then we can get into both the Controlled Digital Lending Program and then more recently the National Emergency Library. Yeah, thanks, Michael. So uh, Open Libraries and Controlled Digital Lending, um, are, it's a program that we've been running at the Internet Archive in various forms, actually since 2011. So we started with libraries in the Boston area. And as Brewster mentioned, we now have more than, uh, there's more than 30 libraries that are participating um, that are saying, hey, you've digitized this book. I have it on my shelves. Um, I'd like to be able to lend a digital copy. Okay, so many of them make them available. How do you go ahead and make those available then? Yeah, so so controlled digital lending is a it's a legal framework. It's been developed by the copyright scholars and librarians, including Kyle, who's with us today, uh, and it describes how libraries can lend digital versions of the physical books on their shelves. So let me tell you how this works in practice. So the Internet Archive has built this lending library of more than 1.4 million modern books. These are books that are in copyright, books that are published now, 1925 and more recently. Um, we've acquired these and we've digitized those. We make that library available to the world, meaning that anyone with an internet connection can borrow our books. Um, we think that this is important because we can help provide equal access to library materials at global scale and uh, to, the, you know, to the US and uh, to people all around the world. So under normal circumstances, we lend these books one at a time based on the number of physical copies that are in our library and our, in our library's uh, network um, to users through controlled digital lending. And so if the book is checked out, then users join a wait list. Um, they check out the book for two weeks, uh, just like a physical book uh, that you get from your library. And you can recheck out the book if there's no wait list or if there is a wait list, then you join the wait list. Um, there are also controls to stop the redistribution of the files. And again, we've been running this service since uh, 2011. Okay, that sounds fabulous. Uh, I, well, I'd, I'd love to get Kyle in in a moment to talk about some of those legal issues. That's the approach with controlled digital lending. But in light of the, the current pandemic, you've also introduced uh, the National Emergency Library. Can you describe what that is and, and why you went, and did, went ahead and did that? 
Sure, yeah. So the National Emergency Library is a response to the closure of schools and uh, public libraries at national scale. So for the first, uh, this is amazing, you know, for the first time in history, the entire physical public library system and our educational systems are closed. That, our, our physical libraries were shuttered. We did a, 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 an estimate um, using public data and we found that there are 650 million books in just in public libraries alone right now today that are totally inaccessible to the people who funded their purchase, tax paying citizens. So since our library is based on lending digital versions of physical books, we saw that we could offer access to that collection of 1.4 million books. We knew it wouldn't be comprehensive, but it could certainly help these educators, these students, these lifelong learners who are now shut out of their public library and out of their school library and out of their schools. Okay, so millions of people, hundreds of millions of people now without access, as you say, uh, with hundreds of millions of books having been purchased, no longer available. This is designed to try to backfill that a little bit, although the, the numbers, it's pretty obvious, are small relative to the, the loss of access that we're seeing. But nevertheless, it will hopefully have, have some amount of impact. So how do you go ahead and do that? What's the difference between the approach that you've taken in the past with controlled digital lending as compared to the National Emergency Library? Yeah, I'd also like to throw in, but I'll answer that, but I want to throw in some of the, like, the, the, the extreme uh, messages, the, the, the hardship that we were uh, hearing from educators, from teachers, from, from students, from parents who were, in some cases, we, we heard from an educator that it was a Thursday and she was had to flip her entire classroom to online Zoom learning on Monday. They didn't have time to pack up books. There, there were, in, in so many cases, we were getting these messages from students, from, from teachers who said, we've purchased the, cop the copies of this book. My district has purchased 700 copies of this book. And yet, they're sitting in the library, they're sitting in the school, and they're completely closed off from us. So, um, you know, there, there, so there had been these purchased copies, but you couldn't access them. So the key difference between the between our you know normal controlled digital lending environment and the National Emergency Library is that the National Emergency Library doesn't have wait lists. All of the other controls are in place, right? So users borrow a book for two weeks. Um, they check out uh, up, ten, up to 10 books at a time. They can't redistribute the files. There are, there's DRM in place. But in the National Emergency Library, we've suspended wait lists. Okay, so that's really the only major difference. There's often talk uh, about sort of somehow being a free-for-all in terms of what people can do with the books and how long they have them. You're telling me that that's in fact not the case, that all the restrictions that existed within controlled digital lending continue to apply. The only difference is the wait list is removed. In other words, more people can have access to a copy than would have been the case prior. That's exactly right. And, and we, we came to this decision because we were getting this feedback from the teachers who were saying, can this work for my classroom of students? Can 25 students all read the same book at the same time? With controlled digital lending, with our normal operations, we have, as Brewster mentioned, you know, a small handful of copies for sort of the, the everyday uh, researcher who's needing to you know, write a term paper or, or uh, look at a book for a reference, it certainly does not scale to that classroom use. And so we knew that if we needed to, to, to help teachers and educators and, and students right now in this sort of extraordinary moment in time, that, um, that this was the way of doing so, that, that suspending wait lists for a temporary period of time, that's also really important too. This is, um, 
we called this the National Emergency Library because we wanted to, uh, to describe this as being around the boundaries of the U.S. National Emergency Declaration. And so we've said that the, that the National Emergency Library will be in existence through either June 30th or the end of the U.S. National Emergency. And we chose June 30th because we wanted to get past the academic calendar, get into um, summer. And, and, you know, this is, you know, uh, a handful of weeks ago when we were making this decision and when we're already hearing now from from many school systems that they're that they've already put a, a suspension on summer school um, and summer courses so when we come around to june 30th we'll be making a decision about you know the future okay none of that makes sense we're already seeing reports as schools are beginning to grapple with questions for the fall quite frankly and whether or not we're going to see class classrooms back in physical space or whether some of the online learning is going to continue even into the fall so uh one what one can well understand why there is that possibility of demand to say hey can you continue this on for a longer period of time uh, i th i'm i'm glad that you you, know, you broke that down and and sort of dispel some of the myths that are associated with with it. We've seen a lot of criticism, though, some of it based on myths, but some of it grounded uh, in concerns around how this comports with conventional copyright law. So, uh, Kyle, you, you mentioned you're dealing with more copyright issues now than ever before. Uh, why don't you walk us through a little bit the copyright analysis, certainly for the controlled digital lending, and then by extension, the, the move towards a national emergency library and the removal of the wait lists? Sure. So, um, you know, I don't work for the IA, but you can't help if you study fair use and work in this field. Uh, you've been observing their various library programs from the beginning. I heard about the Wayback Machine when I was in law school. So I've been looking at this for a long time. Um, so let me take it from a thousand feet and then, then land this thing. I think as you pointly, uh, rightly point out, some of the criticism is about copyright libraries and their role. And this crisis, I think, is really highlighting some pervasive copyright myths and the lack of understanding that a good portion of the Copyright Act is filled to the brim with copyright exceptions like fair use, first sale, and the library exceptions. And I think some of this dialogue reveals that the rise of permissions culture has badly damaged our understanding about how libraries work and our particular role in society. So the copyright system maintains the market balance that has long been recognized by the courts and Congress as between rights holders and libraries. And it makes it possible for libraries to fulfill their vital function in society by enabling the loaning of books to benefit research, science, intellectual enrichment for readers. Um, and this situation that we're in now, whether it's controlled digital lending or the National Emergency Library, I don't think there's any more harm to the authors than there is in the days when the libraries were open and people could borrow these books, right? The rights haven't changed during the pandemic. Libraries can still loan books, but obviously now it has to be a little bit different. And in the U.S., we've had some litigation talking about libraries, access to works, and fair use before, right? The Google Books case and the Hathi Trust case have informed our modern notions of fair use. And I'd like to point out there was similar criticism uh, by rights holders in the past about digitization and uh, access efforts, right? The VCR, the cable box, the DVR, accessing music online, all technologies that make copies and increase access, um, but they're here because of fair use. So let me start to land this thing. Let me get to the core point. Um, and I always teach with Feist Publications, which is a copyright case from 1991, which is, if you, if you talk about it with students, you're like, it's about two telephone book companies, you know, suing each other, but they'll snore at that. It's actually one of the critical cases for understanding how copyright works. And to quote from them briefly here, they state in this decision, it's a Supreme Court case of law of the land, it may seem unfair, 
that much of the fruit of the labor may be used by others without compensation. But they quote Justice Brennan, they say, he has correctly observed that this is not some unforeseen byproduct of a statutory scheme. It is rather the essence of copyright. In a constitutional requirement, the primary objective of copyright is to reward the, 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 the sharing, to promote the progress of science and useful arts, not to reward the labor of the authors. So libraries are a core part of this purpose. Remember the first Copyright Act everywhere in the world, and also the first in the US was entitled an act for the encouragement of learning. So if we're doing a fair use analysis of this unprecedented situation in which we have no precedent for copyright in an international pandemic, but we do have the Copyright Act and we do have its exceptions, fair use offers some flexibility in responding to this crisis. So I believe any rationale for a number of fair uses is strong as long as we're providing good information, making good faith uh, copyright decisions when asked, and that we're limiting the activities to the specific time-bound needs of our communities for the rest of this pandemic timeline. Now, the complaints from the authors are, are probably focused on that fourth factor of the copyright uh, of fair use, right, that market harm. But if we look at it through the view of it's part of the Copyright Act as a whole, when we're examining a potential market harm situation, the question is, would the use cause substantial economic harm such that allowing it would frustrate the purpose of copyright by materially impairing the incentive to publish that work? So the primary reason why the market harm weighs in favor of fair uses by any library uh, is because the market effect is nearly identical to the market effect already favored under the famous first sale doctrine, right? This is how libraries loan books. We buy a book, we purchase a book, we acquire a book, starting with a legally authorized copy and you're capable of making them available to users without permission. In fact, 107 through 122, which is a good chunk of the Copyright Act, um, these are permission-free uses, fair use, first sale and section 108. A library doesn't need permission to lend a book. A library doesn't need permission to use interlibrary loan. A library can make copies of books. In fact, if they're out of print books, sometimes whole copies, and give them to researchers for private study and research without permission. As Brewster said, we can make preservation. If I assign a book and a copy gets put on reserve in my library, 40 of my students can come to that library in 12 hours and access that book over and over and over. So for the works at issue, we've had to change, right? We've had to use technology. So the technology that's placed on the works in controlled digital lending, the same technology, by the way, that publishers use to control their ebook methodologies, ensures that the use closely matches the market effect that the rights holder was already compensated for upon that first sale of that book. So when I see publishers making deals with platforms to offer free ebooks for during this time, I applaud that effort, right? But I know that they are seeking permission because the platforms are not libraries. They are for-profit companies and they need permission to distribute, right? Libraries don't. Publishers are also getting a mound of data from this, emails, names, schools, addresses. Libraries don't do that, right? In fact, we're statutorily required not to keep records. Um, so a secondary consideration, one which Brewster mentioned, which I think is the most powerful, I think, or maybe where the fair use case is the strongest, is that for the vast majority of 20th century books that are out there, which make up the bulk of materials in our libraries, there is not a functioning market to be harmed, right? 650 million books across the United States are on the shelves over a thousand closed libraries. Making them accessible 
with the limited timeline, the five-year moving wall, the takedown mechanism, the fact that these are not the same excellent versions that you'd find in an ebook, right? Roughshod images. Um, these are the factors that I believe in archive is using to make its fair use case. Um, so I, I think if we look at it from that view, again, we're trying to upend these misunderstandings and let libraries do what they have always done, continue to loan books. Right. Let me just, I, you, you mentioned the, the ability to remove books, which wouldn't typically be part of a fair use analysis, but, but, it, but it is, and we haven't highlighted it yet, but authors who are concerned with the availability of their books within the system have the ability under this system to ask that it be removed. Is that right? That is absolutely right. But of course, I'm speaking for the IA right now. Chris can weigh in on that. <laughs> oh, Brewster. Yeah, this uh, that that's true. That's absolutely true. And based on some of the um, really misinformation and incendiary uh, uh, communication by the lobbyists on the other side, um, they they basically inflamed a bunch of of authors, and they came and said, "Oh my God, you're doing this completely horrible thing." It's like, and when they understood what we were doing, um, a lot of them were still inflamed, but a lot of them have come around and said. Hey, that's not so bad. Really? Why was I told this other thing? It's like, well, they're they're paid a lot of money by people to go and, and spread misinformation. So we we've tried to respond to people that um are uh that are inflamed, um, but also explain what it is that's going uh going on for real. And when people understand what's going on, actually most people like libraries. There are certainly those lobbyists that don't want libraries anymore, um, but they, um, but there's, there's still a, a broad public support for libraries. As part of that, people don't necessarily think of the think of online sites as being libraries, but you can confirm as well that the Internet Archive is in fact a library. Yes, we're we're actually a library. Um, we have physical location, we have physical stacks, we have um, physical visitors, but we don't check out mostly uh, things physically or mostly a digital uh, component um, but you know the library uh, the State Library of California is certified we are actually a library for funding um, uh, purposes and uh, so yeah we walk like a duck quack like a duck <laughs> fair enough uh, Kyle I just, I, was, I just wanted to come back on the copyright side for a Please. moment you highlighted the Hathi trust case and the like can you just walk us through quickly that there's there's several components in a sense to making these works available there is the digitization side and now there is the making it available with some of these restrictions so I just wanted to confirm that the US both from a statutory interpretation perspective but then also from a case law perspective has supported some of these kinds of approaches yes definitely uh, certainly Hathi trust we saw a, a, a very bold move towards um, hey adopting libraries to the modern era now Hathi trust certainly is a result of the Google books right they are their birth from the same efforts um, except Hathi Trust is a nonprofit institution that has uh, all the scans of those works. And they allow, by the way, a similar controlled digital lending program that Hathi Trust is currently doing for its member partners, um, which they're calling the uh, emergency library of their own. <laughs> um, Hathi Trust is making the same type of limited availability to their partnerships. 
uh, for one hour at a time. It's like the ultimate reserve system, um, except it's digital. Um, and this is reflective, I think, of the nature of the research libraries, the major research libraries that, that threw in on HathiTrust, that idea that some of my users need to come in, do a site check, and get out very quickly. And it's not uh, what has been referred to as a full reading event. Um, certainly researchers are more likely to do that type of work. What I thought was interesting about HathiTrust's emergency library program that they have is that you can hit return now, which I always loved. So if you're doing site checking, you can get in, get to that page, site check it, and then return it, and the next person on the list would access it. That's what they're doing. And I, I think that's another flavor of controlled digital lending that's out there. We have open libraries, uh, we have uh, the HathiTrust version. So again, there's many people under the umbrella of controlled digital lending currently. All right, that's interesting. So both Chris and Brewster, this has been up and running now for uh, a number of weeks. Can you give us a sense of the response so far? How is it being used? Uh, is, it is the use consistent with uh, your expectations, uh, and what does it do to, in a sense, respond to some of the concerns that some have expressed about the existence of, a, of an open library of this sort? Yeah, well, I'll start with the, the feedback that we're getting from our uh, intended audience, which is students and teachers, and they're incredibly thankful that someone is coming to their uh, assistance, that someone is helping them um, out in these incredible times um, when, again, you know, they've had to, to turn their classroom uh, sort of inside out in a moment's notice. Um, so the, the messages that we get are just uh, from, the, from students, from educators is really supportive and that, 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 that buoys us. Um, you know, uh, Brewster wrote a blog post uh, last week that sort of described some of the usage patterns that we've seen in the National Emergency Library. So I'll turn it over to Brewster to kind of elaborate on that. Yeah, they, um, ninety percent of the uh, books that have been borrowed are more than ten years old, and in fact, two thirds are from the twentieth century, which is like perfect. Um, and so that that was really good. And we went and did the counts and to try to, you know, the uh, to try to get an idea of the reading events that have happened based on checked out books are on the order of the checkouts that you'd have from a town library of thirty thousand. So the number of books that are being checked out in such a way that they're, as best we can tell, they're being read as opposed to just kind of moved on after minutes. Because um, oh, the majority of books are not touched after they've been checked out for 30 minutes. So people are using these books differently than, uh, uh, in general, what they would do with checking out books. They're, they're maybe doing fact checking, they're in and out. They sort of deal with it as if it were a web page. Um, where these are now linked um, to Wikipedia pages so people can go and dive deeper from Wikipedia entries. And all of these uses are exactly what we're looking for. We want people to be able to get deeper. And it's not really beach reading. This is not, you wouldn't do beach reading of these books. Um, not if you had another choice. Um, I. Well, I buy books, um, but it's uh, it is our intended user base that is seeming that's really springing too. But at the same time, it does it does sound that in fact the the usage is wholly consistent with the 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 other library that Kyle was referencing, which is much more education focused, where people are making use of it for those more limited education type purposes. And where we don't know a lot about our users and on purpose. 
Um, we've been doing this program with some of the big institutions in Canada for a long time, this whole digitize and lend approach. Um, and it, it just makes a whole lot of sense for people that want to turn to their screens rather than physically troop into a library. And also it allows you to go and do uh, searching so you can search based on the words in the book and be a bit more useful in, in many ways. And if we don't do this, we're going to end up with a generation that's being brought up on a thin veneer of whatever happens to be in Wikipedia. Um, that that's not good enough. We need people to be able to know more and specifically know about the 20th century. The 20th century is a very impactful century. And if we don't bring that materials up and out to people, uh, we may be doomed to, to, to re-see some of the, uh, the bad ideas that, frankly, may be going on. Yeah. The, do you have data on how different the use is right now in the National Emergency Library as compared compared to the traditional controlled digital lending approach that you have? In other words, how often are, P are you finding the same book actively used many times without the sorts of wait, without the wait, with the wait list having been removed? Um, it's, we're, we're getting about twice the use at this point um, in terms of the number of, of books being checked out as best we can tell. Um, a lot of people are signing up. They're using it differently because they can use it at the classroom at a time. Um, so we have gotten um, school districts to go and say, Kate, can I just sign up 7,000 students all at once? And we say, yes. So that's been really great. But we're still dealing with the kind of uh, scale use that you would get in a town of 30,000's library. Okay. So, so it is not um, uh, the widespread burning of, of capitalism that uh, some people are, are saying it is. It's just a library. I guess let's close by asking what the future holds. And I think you've hinted at it a little bit already. It, it, I think for many will will be both informative and I think important to recognize just how closely linked this is to active education right now. Uh, and so I guess as we look ahead to particularly the, the National Emergency Library, it's closely linked, it sounds like, both to the current emergency as well as the school the school year. We're looking forward to this being done we want to be beyond this i mean this, this this is not fun it is really straining our schools our libraries our teachers our parents our kids uh, we want this thing to be done um but it is getting a um um it's shining a, a light on how important it is to to have digital access to materials and to have digital access within the library model, not where everything is licensed on a per SIP basis, where a, a publisher can go and pull back a book and make it disappear from all the library shelves. The, I think we're, if there's something enduring about this, I'm hoping it gets more libraries and more schools involved in taking control of what it is that's distributed. But this, um, but the National Emergency Library, I would like no more than to just say we're done with it. Fair enough. Well, I think that's a great way to to end both in terms of the temporary nature of this, as well as the the, the vision of something far greater in terms of access in the future. So, Brewster, Kyle, Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter 
at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <music>